0: Now, will you turn with me in your Bibles this evening to the scripture reading in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 19, as we read our Savior's words on the subject that is before us tonight, the subject of marriage and divorce, Matthew chapter 19. If you are a visitor, we encourage you to follow the scripture reading in your own Bible or the Bible in the pew in front of you. Matthew 19, from verse 1 to verse 9, 1 through 9. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. May God bless to our understanding these words of Scripture, the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this evening, the subject before us, both from the scriptures and from the Westminster Confession of Faith that we are studying on these Sunday evenings, is the subject of marriage and divorce. And I would like you to turn to the Westminster Confession, if you would, as usual, in the back of the Trinity Hymnal on page 685, page 685, the chapter dealing with this subject, of Marriage and Divorce, the chapter that we read as part of our worship service uh, this morning. Now, a number of you will recall that last Sunday evening we began to look together at the first two sections of the Westminster Confession in the light of Scripture, and we discovered that, as usual, the teaching of the confession is very rich and very full and we were able only to consider sections 1 and 2 of chapter 24. The institution of marriage as given by God as his gift to mankind and the purposes of marriage. And we were reminded last Sunday evening that the biblical and divine pattern for marriage is beyond all question that of monogamy. One man committed to one woman in a lifelong relationship appointed by God for man's blessing until God shall separate them by death. And we noted in the light of that that even though today we may not seem to believe in polygamy anymore, that is to say that a man may marry more than one wife or a wife may marry more than one husband, in these lax and disorderly days in which we live, What we are seeing, in effect, is polygamy in our society, as divorce has become so readily available, and a divorce, moreover, that is not biblically sanctioned. So that if you only consider the example of some of our film stars today, uh, they are, in the eyes of God, guilty most certainly of polygamy in the light of the biblical teaching of marriage, divorcing one man or one woman for unbiblical reasons and having married a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. And we saw last Sunday evening how very relevant and timely this reminder of the divine sanction of monogamy really is. Now we saw moreover last Sunday that marriage was ordained by God for the mutual help and comfort that husband and wife ought to find in each other. And this is a blessed and fulsome purpose indeed. And alongside that purpose was that both the human race might be propagated and the church in particular might be blessed with a holy seed. And for the preventing, finally, of uncleanness, for the upholding of proper and biblical moral standards, in society, and in God's church. Now, as I say, we found these things so challenging and so fulsome last Sunday evening that we stopped simply at the end of section two. Now, this evening, I want to direct your attention to sections three and four, first of all, and then, as time permits, to sections five and six. And in sections three and four, you have the divinely given Uh, restrictions upon marriage. Who may marry and under what conditions they may marry in sections three and four. And if you look at sections five and six, you have there uh, the divine grounds on which marriage may be dissolved. And only upon those grounds may it be biblically dissolved. And that's where we hope to finish Uh, This evening. So, as we come to sections 3 and 4, let me read to you the beginning of section 3. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. Therefore, such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels. Papists or other idolaters, neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. Now you'll notice that the language is very strong language. And I believe that we still need in the church today this very solemn and serious warning that is given, this restriction, this fence that is placed around marriage. And if you followed through in the reading of this section with me, you'll see that there are two restrictions on marriage. The first really is not so much a restriction as a permission but for particular reasons I call it a restriction, that all sorts of people who are able with judgment to give their consent may marry and that marriage be recognized and honored in the sight of God. Now, the second restriction is that Christians may only marry in the Lord. And the remainder of the section we read explains why Christians may only marry in the Lord. So I want you to look at these two restrictions with me. First of all, all sorts of people may marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Now you notice how wise and biblical that statement is. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry. It's not mandated. It is not required that everyone should enter into marriage in the course of their life and human experience here on earth. But it is lawful for them to do this. We recognize, of course, that Scripture teaches the gift of singleness. And you can read about this in 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul very clearly recognizes that some are not called to be married. And if that is the case, it is because God has given them that particular and very special and wonderful gift, of being able to continue in the single state, to resist these sexual temptations, to step outside of God's commandments and find sexual uh, relief by an illicit or unbiblical relationship with someone else. And at the same time, they know increasingly in themselves that marriage is not God's appointment for them. And in such a situation, God has given particular grace those people whom we call today the singles. But it is lawful for all to marry. There is nothing sinful in it. And it's good that we should emphasize this, because, for example, the Roman Catholic Church today still emphasizes that the single life is far superior to the married life. And if you can become a monk or a nun and take vows of perpetual chastity and obedience to the Roman church, then that is more meritorious for you and more commendable in the eyes of God than the married state really is. Now we have to say in face of such teaching that this is a totally unbiblical emphasis and that everywhere in Scripture we read that marriage is an honorable estate and a gift of God and that it should be the normal experience of those whom God has created and formed in his image. I want you to notice, moreover, that because of the clarity of this statement that all sorts of people are indeed lawfully uh, uh, inclined to marriage or lawfully may be married, that as a Christian minister... My position prior to coming to this congregation, and I still maintain that there is biblical ground for it, is that where a minister is appointed by the state with powers to conduct marriage, he may in certain instances at his discretion agree to the marriage of two unbelieving persons and officiate at that marriage. Now, before you accuse me of heresy, let me say immediately that we do not believe that marriage is simply within the perimeter of the Christian church. It is not a sacrament. It is a creation ordinance appointed by God, and all sorts of people are entitled to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. And therefore, in certain circumstances, I believe it is right for a pastor to prevent worse evils, indeed to perform his function allotted to him by the state to marry two unbelieving people. But he must first ascertain very clearly that neither of them is a professing Christian because it is clearly forbidden in Scripture for one of them to be a professing Christian and marry an unbeliever. But it is not forbidden in Scripture for two unbelievers to be joined together in marriage who, with judgment, are able to give their consent. Now, I commend that position to you for your thought. But meantime, I abide within the practice of this congregation very willingly that it is our policy only to marry Christians, and normally those who are members of our own congregation. But I'm saying to you that even G.I. Williamson, in his commentary, Upon this chapter of the Confession and his orthodoxy is beyond dispute, even G.I. Williamson recognizes that there are certain instances where a minister may indeed with good conscience perform that office between two unbelievers to prevent a greater evil from happening, namely that they should be united together sexually without the institution of marriage being performed. Now, that's a challenging thought, and I simply commend it to you. But you notice the second restriction here is that Christians may only marry in the Lord. And one of the very evident proof texts is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, where Paul writes, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. That is, of course, the law of God respecting marriage and respecting adultery. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, but only in the Lord. And that text alone makes it clear that the New Testament teaching is that Christians should marry Christians and those alone. Now, why is this stipulation and restriction placed upon Christians? Well, it's very obvious, isn't it? As we saw in section one and two, marriage has been instituted in order that the husband and wife might be mutually encouraged together, that they might mutually reach the spiritual destiny to which God has appointed them. And to that great end, as we saw, Eve was brought to Adam as a helpmeet. Not as I said to you last Sunday, that she might do the dishes and the chores and the housework in the home and be a helpmeet in that way. Primarily the emphasis in Genesis 2 is that she might be God's agent in enabling her husband to reach the maximum of his spiritual potential. Might arrive at his spiritual destiny, which is maturity in Christ and similarly. The wife has the husband that he might lead her to fulfill her spiritual destiny. Now, when you realize that, beloved, how absurd it is to think of a Christian marrying an unbeliever. How can that unbeliever possibly be an helpmeet to enable the Christian to realize his full spiritual potential before God? The very opposite will happen. The unbelieving partner will be a hindrance and a restriction and almost a running sore within that marriage. We are not saying that there may not be happiness in such a marriage, even though it is in disobedience to the word of God, happiness at a certain level. But there can never be that deep and abiding fulfillment that God has promised when his law is observed and his commandment is held in reverence, that Christians may marry only in the Lord. Now, the confession doesn't deal with the subject that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians 7. What does a Christian partner do who is caught into a marriage already with an unbeliever? That is, the Christian has been converted after the marriage has been made. And Paul's answer is very clearly that uh, the Christian is not to end that marriage by divorce or by separation. He is to continue, she is to continue with the unbelieving partner. And the very continuance, as we read in 1 Corinthians 7, casts a hallowed influence over the unbeliever. It sanctifies the unbeliever. It is a means by which God's salvation is able to reach out to, to the unbelieving partner in that marriage. But remember, God has not sanctioned the marriage of a believer with an unbeliever. This is a situation in 1 Corinthians 7 where one of the members in that marriage evidently has been converted after the marriage has taken place. So you notice then that Christians are to marry only in the Lord. And therefore, we read on, such as profess the true reformed religion, that is, the biblical faith, the faith of the church as reformed by the scriptures, they should not marry with infidels, that is, unbelievers, papists, that is, members of the Roman Catholic Church, or other idolaters. Well, for the obvious reasons that I've already given you, that scripture forbids it and on very good ground. Now, we have to acknowledge this evening that since papists are mentioned, the old-fashioned English word for Roman Catholics, we have to say that the Roman Catholic Church, at best, is a seriously deformed church. At worst, it maintains doctrines that are anti-biblical and therefore heretical. And therefore, it would be totally out of keeping with a true believer to marry a Roman Catholic. Even though the Catholic Church believes in certain of the fundamentals that we also believe in, it denies many of the cardinal doctrines of the gospel, alas. So neither should those who are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. So quite apart from wrong religious belief, It is totally unbiblical for a Christian to marry someone whose life is known to be openly wicked and in error. Now, beloved, the time to inculcate these principles is not when our children are already emotionally involved in a relationship that we can see is going to harm and damage them. That's too late. The time to begin to inculcate these lovely and clear biblical principles is long before they are ready for emotional entanglements and involvements with others of the opposite sex. And you know, the reason why pastors and elders can weep over certain situations is because parents have utterly failed in their duty to educate their children from knee height that those who are covenant children and belong to the Lord should begin to pray even in early years that God will choose out a suitable partner for them, a partner who is committed to the biblical faith. And we should explain clearly to them the tragedies and disasters that follow when a young man sees a young woman who has no interest in Christ but is beautiful, and attractive physically and vivacious, and that person begins to say, "I want to get to know the other." We should explain to them long before this happens that whatever the physical attraction may be, whatever the mental uh, co- the mental compatibility may be, the Word of God forbids a serious relationship being formed that may lead into a disastrous marriage. And we need to begin when our children, therefore, are young. Now, you notice in section four, and quite quickly on this, but there is a third restriction on marriage. The first one was in the sense that all people may marry lawfully. The second one, that Christians are only to marry in the Lord. And the third one is that there are certain degrees of consanguinity Section 4, that is blood relationship uh, in which marriage is not either lawful or biblical. It ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word. Now, where are these forbidden in the word? And the answer is in two great passages of Scripture particularly. You can look at them when you go home this evening. We don't have time in the service to study them in detail tonight. In Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20... There are two long passages dealing with the forbidden degrees of consanguinity, of closeness, of blood relationship. And, for example, it's forbidden for a brother or sister to marry. It's forbidden for a father to marry his daughter. Forbidden for a mother to marry her son. Relationships that we would call, rightly and biblically, tonight incestuous relationships. Now, my friends in Christ, we should be thankful that even though we live today in a morally lax and disorderly world, and particularly in this country of America, we should be thankful that incest, at least, is not yet a national problem. And we should pray that it will not become so. The sin may indeed occur, but it is not a national scandal. There have been times in the history of mankind where this kind of thing has been a national and international scandal. As you read of the declining days of the Roman Empire in, for example, the classic work by Edward Gibbon on the decline and fall of Rome, you find that such was the degree of moral laxity that all kinds of incestuous relationships were being formed at the very heart of the ruling class within the Roman Empire, and undoubtedly its fall was an act of God's judgment, in part at least because of the sexual errancy of the Roman civilization. So there are degrees of consanguinity in which marriage is forbidden, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties so as those persons may live together as man and wife. Now, I think that's so clear to us that we hardly need to underline it. But what I have to say to you is that your copy of the Confession ends at that point in section 4, doesn't it? My copy, which is the original one and which we used in Scotland, goes on with another sentence. Let me read it to you. The man may not marry any of his wife's kindred nearer in blood than he may of his own, nor the woman of her husband's kindred nearer in blood than of her own. Now, this has caused a problem, and this is why that particular sentence has been taken out of the North American editions. I think its omission is good and that you've lost nothing, basically, by having it excised from the original Westminster documents. And for this reason, that in Leviticus 18 and 20, some people read those passages as a prohibition for a husband, for example, to marry his deceased wife's sister. He may not marry any of her kin that are similarly close uh, to his own kin. He may not marry his own sister, therefore he may not marry his wife's, his deceased wife's sister. Now, I personally believe that as you look at Leviticus 18 and 20, it is not forbidding that kind of remarriage. What it is forbidding is sexual relationship with one's wife's sister, or other relatives while your own wife is alive. And so I think the Westminster divines were probably in error at this point when they stated in the original that A man may not marry any of his wife's kindred nearer in blood than he may of his own. I think there is tremendous comfort in certain circumstances for a husband to marry his deceased wife's sister and that the law of God, in my understanding, does not forbid it. He may be greatly comforted and greatly helped. Again, it is not binding in law, but it is a decision that he may decide to make uh, under the direction of, and in the wisdom that God has given him. So with that comment, let's leave section four and look very quickly as we finish at sections five and six. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage gives just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. Now what we're dealing with here is the question, may marriage lawfully uh, be terminated? during the lifetime of either partner. We know it may be terminated by death, but that is an act of God, until God shall separate them by death. The familiar words of the marriage service. But may it be terminated biblically during the lifetime of either partner? And the answer biblically is yes. In certain circumstances, it may. For example, before the marriage has been consummated, while there is still a contract or an engagement, as we would call it today, if one party finds on evidence there has been fornication on the part of the party he is uh, destined to marry, he may lawfully dissolve the contract. And the proof text, as you may have noticed, is in the case of Joseph and Mary, where Joseph rightfully in terms of the law of God, thought of putting his espoused wife, Mary, away from him because she was found to be with child. And at that point, he didn't realize that she was with child by influence of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Now, you notice the biblical grounds for divorce are simply that adultery or marital unfaithfulness must have taken place. And in the eyes of God, that marriage has ceased to be. It has been broken. It has been sundered. And in those circumstances and those alone at this point, it is lawful, you notice. It is not necessary but it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce. Why I say it is lawful, but not necessary, is we believe in the Christian faith, but the higher ground where this is possible is that the Christian wife or husband who has been seriously wronged and betrayed may find it in his or her heart to forgive even that serious offense and restore the marriage again. But lawfully, the party that has been sinned against may sue for divorce. And on the basis that in the eyes of God, that marriage has been broken, that oneness that God has made has been sundered and torn apart by the unfaithfulness of the offending party, on those grounds, the innocent party may be entitled to remarry as though the offending party were dead. Now, what is equally clear is that the guilty party is not entitled to remarriage. And any such remarriage is sin in the eyes of God. And at your leisure, you may look at the several proof texts that indicate these things in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 2, and Matthew 19, verse 9, that we read together this evening. Now, if you look at section 6, It tells us that although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can in no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient for dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Now, this is saying, you notice very quickly, that because of the corruption of our hearts, we want to extend continually the biblical grounds on which a lawful divorce may take place. And if you need evidence of that, you only need to read the newspapers, watch the television screens, read about the film stars whom everyone it seems wants to emulate today who have sundered and divided legitimate marriages made with god's approval and have gone into divorce on all manner of unbiblical reasons disagreement incompatibilities alleged are not sufficient grounds for biblical divorce We are apt to study all kinds of arguments to extend the divine provision and so go beyond it and contrary to it. But the confession is clear. Nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can in no way be remedied by the church or civil state is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. And that second ground is dealt with in 1 Corinthians 7 where particularly if an unbelieving partner decides he cannot live any longer with the believing partner, he or she, whatever it may be, and leaves that partner, Paul says, but the believer who has been deserted is no longer bound. And that clearly means is no longer bound in that marriage and is free under God's direction and in his wisdom to remarry if he or she chooses. But, of course, this should only be after every effort has been made, as the Confession says here, both by church and state, to remedy that sad case of dissolving a very fundamental, the fundamental human relationship in life. And this should be done, it says, finally, in a public and orderly course of proceeding, and the person's concern not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. In other words, it should not be made easy, They should be faced with the seriousness of what has happened and appeal solemnly and in the name of God made to reconcile their differences and to restore that relationship again. Now, let me say as I finish, finally, a pastoral word. I know some of you are thinking, in all of our churches today, there are people who have been unbiblically divorced. What are we to do? Are we to cast them out of the church? Are we to look askance at them? And consider them less than full members of the church or less than welcome in our midst. And the answer is, where we are living in a society that has accepted easy, unbiblical divorce, we have to deal with the problem when it has happened pastorally. It is still a biblical and theological issue, but we have to recognize that many who have been divorced unbiblically have been divorced unbiblically in ignorance of the Bible's requirements and its solemn teaching on the sanctity of marriage. And some within the church mourn the fact that they were not better taught and did not therefore maintain that marriage as far as they could instead of separating for unbiblical and insufficient reasons. And the problem we are faced with is a pastoral one. To deal with them where they are. To accept them with love and grace in our hearts. To teach them the unquestionable biblical requirements of marriage. And if they have remarried, to encourage them to be faithful in this union which they have contracted and leave the issues of the other in the hands of God. And I believe that this is the way in which, biblically, we are to deal with that situation. Now, there may be other situations where the church has to exercise discipline because of the circumstances, and this would apply particularly to those in membership who are suing out an unbiblical divorce, who are seeking to marry, not in the Lord, but an unbeliever, an infidel. Clearly, in those cases, church discipline must be resorted to if pastoral counsel does not avail. But we need great compassion. We need great love in our hearts. We need to remember that this world is a sinful and a fallen world and that there but for the grace of God go I. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're thankful for these sections so clear and so apposite, so fitting for this lax and disorderly age in which we live. And we pray that this study this evening may indeed strengthen our own marriages and inform us more fully concerning those strict but yet gracious and well-intentioned requirements which the Lord our God has set before us and all for our own good. For Christ's sake, amen.